If you've got your Bibles, would you grab, pull them out and turn together to, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Oh, Amplify's heading out now. Sorry, I thought you guys had already gone. Amplify, head, head on out. Follow, follow Paul. Thank you. So we're continuing our series in, uh, in the book of James, and we've entitled the series Faith Does. And James wrote this to um, early churches, new churches. Uh, we understand James is the um, half-brother of Jesus. So he knew Jesus very well, very intimately. We know his journey of faith, that he didn't always believe in who Jesus said that he was, that he had to come to that realization himself. But he knew the teachings of Jesus, and then he watched as the churches in what they call the diaspora had to flee out of Jerusalem and start these early churches. And he was watching and observing and hearing about these churches, and he had some concerns that the faith that they had in their head was not flowing out into their hands and feet. And so he writes this letter to say, the faith that you have has to move you. It has to change you in the very depths of your being that you are different. You are no longer the same. And this passage is a really key one in the book of James for opening this up and helping us to understand it. So let's read this together. We'll title this one, Faith Flourishes. Faith will cause us to flourish. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created." Father, as we just unpack your word, we understand that it is truth, but we also understand that we can be deceived in our own hearts and by the world around us. Would you show us where we are deceived? And would you shine your light of truth into our very souls that we might be that first fruits that you promise us? We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. This text, I think, hinges on this verse 16. So we're going to talk about temptation, and this is, one, this is a, an amazing description here. It's very, very vivid and, and, and quite appropriate on Mother's Day in the imagery that he uses here of temptation and how temptation is connected to sin. It's very, very, very important that we understand it. But it hinges on something. He says you have to understand in this in this movement that we have into temptation and allowing temptation to conceive and give birth that, that, that um, leads to death. He says there's a deception at the heart of it. He says, I don't want you to be deceived. And then what he does is show the darkness of that deception, but then he shows, shows how light is shone on it and what that light is so that I don't have to live as a deceived person. We hate being deceived. Like, don't we? 
Like, like just when you hear somebody and you believe something in your heart of hearts and you have come to a place where you really fully believe that something is true and you believe it and then you find out that you've been deceived, you hate it, don't we? Right? That's why we often get stuck in places we're stuck with lies and untruths because we have this thing called confirmation bias where we go, well, I want to keep believing the things that are, even when I've got evidence that's telling me something different, I don't want to think that I am a person who was deceived. Yet I think this is so important that we understand that one of the, the ways that we should understand the gospel, that is the good news of that Scripture tells us centered in the person of Jesus Christ, is that I am, and you are, and all of humanity has been deceived. We have been told and bought into a lie that has tricked us into believing something that is wrong. And so part of the good news is taking off that, or first of all, confessing to that deception, and then taking it off. I remember when I was a little kid, how many here um, know the story of the emperor's new clothes? Majority of you, right? For those of you that don't, it's a story originally from Hans Christian Andersen. I had a, a, a book, a little uh, book when um, I was a kid, and it's particularly vivid imagery in this book, isn't it, for little kids, you know? But the, the story is of this ruler, and he's, well, he's vain, and uh, this tailor comes along from the big city and says, this is the new fashion. And so uh, he, he gets him dressed up in it by firstly undressing from what he's wearing and then putting on what he says is the new fashion. And being vain, he thought, I want to be that because I want people to think well of me. But the new fashion was what? Right, it was rather invisible, right? It was his birthday suit. He was, he was tricking him. He was deceived. And he believed it. Not only did he believe it, he believed it to the point where what did he do? He paraded through town. Now, I don't know what you thought when you were a little kid, but you were just like, how stupid could you be? And how embarrassing would that be to be deceived in that way? We hate to think that we've been deceived. And yet we need to know that we have been, and we still are very much prone to being deceived. Now, look at how James describes it. He starts off with a little bit of theology there, because this is where we can go wrong. Eve's there at the tree. She's looking up at the fruit. Her husband is there with her. I don't know how many times they've visited this tree before. I don't know how many times they've longingly looked at that fruit. But all it took was the deceiver to come along and say, did God really say? Is God really good is the implication? Is he actually telling you the whole truth? I think there's things that he's holding you back from. Listen to your heart. Doesn't your heart tell you that, that fruit looks lovely? Isn't it, doesn't it look desirable? Wouldn't following your desires 
and your heart and thinking that that will give you fulfillment, wouldn't that be lovely? Anything of this ring true today? Do you, do you ever get told to follow your heart? That your desires are actually the deepest thing about you and you need to follow them and listen to them and go through with it? But what's interesting in that original story is when they take it and they eat it and there's this unveiling, right? But this unveiling as their eyes are opened, not this glorious fulfillment that they thought they had. What was it? Shame. They realized that there was a nakedness and a shame to them. The thing that they believed, the promise that they believed that would give them hope and fulfillment actually led to embarrassment and shame and ultimately death. And when God comes down, what does Adam do? Who does he blame? He doesn't say, sorry God, that was me. I take responsibility and ownership for this. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been having those thoughts. What does he do that you and I do? <laughs> I blame someone else. And he blames two people. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. So he blames the people around him, and ultimately he blames God for the whole setup. Do you see that? We live in a world today that even if they admit to the idea of wrong and sin and evil, say to you, don't admit to it. It's not you. It's not your fault. You don't have agency in this place. It's because of your bad upbringing or your parents or your oppression or the things that have gone wrong. You name it. You can find anything to blame. James goes, here's the real story when the blindfold is taken off. Firstly, it's not God. God is good. All the way to the center of his being. He's good. There's no evil in him. There's no evil intent in him. If he is tempted, he always says, not interested. Because the evil is the opposite in God. He's not, there's just, he's nothing, he is good. And we're going to see that in, as we roll through these verses. But secondly, he says, the reality is, it's you. It's you. And then he gives us just this incredible picture. I want you to think about it as he walks this way through. He says, people are tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. See, there's desires in me that take me away from God, that take me to places where I want to do the things that my heart wants, right? And I know they're different from how I'm meant to live and how God calls me to it, but they're resident and live within me. And you can be on the surface a quite a good person. Here's how one 
um, a person described it. They said this. He said, uh, it was a college professor, and he just said this. He says, I'm, I'm nice to my students, respectful to my colleagues, love my family, don't steal, commit adultery, use drugs, or swear, and I floss <laughs> regularly. But when I look at myself honestly, I see that I harbor bitterness. bitterness. I hoard my time and resent others intruding on me. I'm vain and consumed with how others perceive me. I wrestle with my sexuality and have strayed with my eyes and my heart. I pretend to listen, but I don't. I think more about being great than being good. I act more spiritual than I am. I'm a mess, broken in every way, and my only hope is God's mercy. So there's got to start with this confession of this evil desire. But, but and it talks about this idea of enticed or lured. It's almost like a fishing kind of picture. You know, you put a lure on to entice the fish to come and grab the hook that's what's within it. There's a temptation that sort of sits there. But James is going, the temptation itself is not sin. It's important to understand that. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He understands temptation but he doesn't sin. It's very important to understand that. Temptation is not sin, but he says there's something. Do you see what happens there? I'm lured by it, and he says, after desire has conceived. Right? Now, I don't know how much of this picture I need to describe to you, but this is birds and the bees stuff. Right? This is when the temptation and the tempted person connect up. Do you understand that? Get the conception picture, right? The temptation and the tempted person connect up. Here's a few ways of describing it. It's the longing to possess just before I steal. It's the flicker of jealousy just before the envy takes hold. It's the yearning to be accepted just before the story is exaggerated. It's the hunger to escape just before I take my drug of choice. It's the craving to control just before the anger fires up. It's the desire to lust just as I click that picture. It's the spark of vanity just before I descend into pride. We know this, don't we? This is what he's saying here. You know this. I know this. I know that moment of conception where I take my evil desire and it matches up in the moment of temptation and I allow it to conceive. And when it conceives, it gives that possibility of life to that action. And James continues on. He says, after desire has conceived, it gestates. And there's then there's the moment where it gives birth to sin. It's, it's, it's given life, but he says it's not life. What is birthed by that desire mixed with the temptation and conception is nasty and brutal and fatal. That's what he says. Now back here when it's a temptation, it's nothing of that, is it? We think, this is the deception, we think if I just have that, whatever that is, 
For you guys that were here for the introduction, we put up there these deep idol ideas, this idea of power and approval and comfort and control. If, if I get enough of those, right, that would give me life. It's really important to understand that feelings and desires from our flesh are so often lead us astray. And our feelings and desires are not an ultimate thing, they're a follower. Jesus described this, he says, where your treasure is, finish the phrase for me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So what he's saying is, your feelings and your desires will follow what you treasure the most. And if you put up in your treasure kind of thing there, these deep idols about power and approval and comfort and control, that's where the desires will come from, and they will always lead to empty promises and what James describes as a death. That's the reality. They're empty. He says you need to understand this. This is a deception. Now, I would love to tell you that all of Christianity gets this. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you that there's a movement within Christianity that has shifted in this place and tells you to still follow your desires and mixes it and tells you that Christianity can have both. Here's a quote from a Christian. Um, I'll just read it and then I'll, I'll say, probably not much I need to say to this, but <clears throat> this is a person whose lifestyle does not fit with the Christian message in any way, shape or form but has millions of followers on Instagram and is well, one of the most well-known people around or in the Western world for calling themselves a Christian, and she said this. Maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. If you're horrified by that quote, I'm pleased to hear it. You see how they've twisted it? Not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian, my friends. You have to be very careful with what people are telling us these days that suffices for Christianity. The deception needs to be removed from our eyes, and we need to understand that our desires can be fulfilled rightly by God. So let's see how he shifts then into the next bit. So he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Can you see why he's concerned about this? I don't want you to have a deception in place there. Take the, the blindfold eye, remove the blinkers. Here is the deception that sits there with it. But now here's the light of truth that comes in. He says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So what he does is he's, he's taking this thing again. Here's the theology. God is good. And this good and wonderful God is generous and he gives good gifts so that everything that you see in the world that is good comes from heaven above. And that should lead 
to a gratefulness and a gratitude. And the image there is the heavenly lights. He says the heavenly lights the, the, is the lights up in the, in the heavens. The main one we would think of is the sun. And the sun comes down and it makes shadows, doesn't it? And these shadows, they shift and they change. They shorten and they lengthen and they widen. And they do all sorts of kind of things. They, they change and they shift as you move around. He says, that's not God. God is the father of those things. He is above and beyond the creation. That's his. And because of that, he doesn't shift. He doesn't change. He doesn't wake up one morning on a bad day, decide to do things differently. He's constant in his goodness in his generosity. Sam Albury, in um, his wonderful book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, um, if you've never heard of Sam Albury, I'd encourage you to look him up and read his stuff. He's a, he's a, a, a very, very good thinker. And he was talking in this about how we've, we've been taught so much to be ungrateful about our bodies. We treat them so badly and we're ungrateful for them. And he talks about this importance of being grateful. He says this, Ingratitude is actually part of the foundation of all sin. Failing to honor God, removing him from his throne and rightful place in our lives happens alongside and because of our lack of giving thanks to him. Not to give thanks is to forget the goodness of God. It is to neglect the truth that he is at heart a God overflowing in kindness and generosity. Every good gift comes from him. And that we fundamentally, uh, we are fundamentally recipients of his kindness, even with all the complications of life. That poor couple's honoring God with being thankful toward him shows us unless we see God as fundamentally good, we will find little reason to follow and worship him. Did you hear that? Thanksgiving is that foundational. This is why James here hits in theology. That's why theology is so critical. I must think rightly about God. If I don't think rightly about God, then I will get so much of the rest of the story wrong. I will be deceived about so many things about myself and about the way the world operates. He says you have to understand that God is fundamentally good. And so then he comes into verse 18. And this is so beautiful. He just says this. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Do you see the image there again? Let's look at verse 15 and 18 together. After desire has conceived, it what? Gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. He's saying that's not the only option in your life. Here's another option. God in his goodness has revealed truth to us. Truth to us about him. Truth to us about ourselves. Truth to us about the world. When we know that truth, we are no longer deceived. What a great gift. In the story of the emperor's new clothes, do you remember who it was that told the truth? It was the little kid. Say so the king's wrong down there in the nutty, right? And he's talking down, and everybody else is thinking, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. This is the king, da-da-da-da-da. And then I love it. There's this little kid who sees, and he laughs, and he calls out. I love that bit of the story. And then suddenly everybody else saw. 
this is, this is what it's talking about here. I love what Amy read out of John 6, this idea of thirst and hunger. Here's another bit in John 8 of Jesus' teaching. He says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will what? Know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. James is deeply concerned about deception. Deception in the area of desire and feelings and sin. It is a critical word for us today. Don't miss it. If you've been listening today and you think, man, I have been deceived, welcome. Because <laughs> we all were deceived. And we're all unpacking what that deception was in trying to walk in that truth. But I pray that you would come to know that word of truth and that truth will bring freedom in your life. God is good, he's unchangeable, he's generous, and he wants the best for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Father, as we read this text, we read us. We read the reality of knowing that we, we are deceived by ourselves. We're deceived by the empty promises of this world. We're often being deceived and gone down these paths so often in our lives. They seem so familiar that... We forget that we have agency in this place, the ability to choose. Would you help us in those places where deception still remains? Would you help us to realize that the desires that sit within our soul can be met in wrong ways that lead to death, but in you, Lord, they can lead to beautiful ways that is freedom and life. We thank you that you came and that word of truth is such a beautiful gift to us. Would you help us to be like that little boy in that story who's able to really see the truth? Would you help us to abide in your word, abide in your truth, to live in that space that we may be truly free people? We ask this in your precious name. Amen.